All right, y'all, welcome. Before we kick things off, I want to shout out a couple of hunting companies that I am proud to uh, be working with. Nor'easter Game Calls is the first one. When you want to get them in close, Nor'easter Game Calls, your place for custom calls, um, pot calls, box calls, deer calls, whatever it is, hit them up. That's Nor'easter Game Calls. Also, Onyx Hunt, the number one GPS hunting app. Know where you stand with Onyx Hunt. Last but not least, Afflictor Broadheads. I don't know if they have a tagline, honestly, a tag phrase or anything like that. But the truth is, I like them. I use them. I've killed a turkey with them. So I'm going to keep on using them. All right. Check them out. Afflictor Broadheads. All right, y'all. So some hunting news. The New York State Department of Environmental Conservation has announced what they're calling the holiday deer hunt. Now, normally in the southern zone of New York State, um, the deer hunting season goes all the way till about maybe just a couple of days before Christmas. Like uh, just last last deer hunting season, um, it ended on December 22nd. This uh, particular what's the word I want venture if you will uh, extends the hunting season in the southern zone of New York State to January 1st now already in the southern zone we have Westchester County which is about an hour north of New York City and you have Suffolk County which is about an hour east of New York City Westchester County which is bow only already goes to December 31st so now I guess they're getting an extra day and Suffolk County which is also bow only already goes to January 31st. So they lucked out. You know what I'm saying? They, they already had an extended season. But uh, the DEC announces, you know, it's basically an opportunity for visiting hunters, um, you know, who might be in New York visiting family around the holidays or maybe, you know, students, college students who are home on break to, to, get, in, to get out there, to get an opportunity and do some deer hunting. Uh, just an FYI, this is just an extended uh, late archery season. So this is only for archery and muzzleloader permits. So if you plan on visiting uh, New York State this fall, you know what I'm saying? Hey, you might be able to get some hunting in. All right, here's my intro music. What up, what up, what up, y'all? Welcome to episode 51 of When the Hunt Calls, the only hunting podcast hosted by a middle-aged black guy from New York City. What's going on? I'm your host, Cliff Cadet, and I am happy to be bringing you another dope episode. Now, if this is your first time listening, I appreciate you taking the chance, taking the risk to listen in on what i enjoy doing so i truly hope you enjoy this episode if you are a returning listener an actual subscriber i truly appreciate you returning and listening to some dope content all right so uh here's the deal if you guys get the chance at the end of this episode whatever platform you are using to listen to this podcast hey head over to the review section hit me off with a you know five star rating maybe even a dope review all right now, without further ado, my guest today is A.J. DeRosa. He is the author of Urban Deer Complex. He is the co-author of Urban Deer Complex 2.0. And 
He is the creative director and founder of Project Upland. All right. That was a mouthful. But I, it was a pleasure talking to him. I hope you enjoy listening in on the conversation, y'all. All right, ladies and gentlemen, on the line with me is none other than AJ DeRosa. Uh, AJ, thank you for taking the time out to speak with me today. I truly appreciate it. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me on. I'm, I'm uh, stoked to talk to somebody who lives in New York City who's diehard about uh, deer hunting. So. <laughs> oh, appreciate that. So I'm I'm gonna dive right into this because um I I recently well not that recent just last year 2020 um I read your book the book you co-authored Urban Complex 2.0 um you co-authored that but you were the sole author of the first book Urban Deer Complex um you're the founder and creative director of the Northwoods Collective I believe. Correct. And you are also a filmmaker for that's, uh, let's see, the Project Upland series that has won awards. Um, so I, before I even go, before I even ask you to kind of dive into to those things that you've worked on, I've got to ask, like, where are you originally from? Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm from uh, about 30 minutes outside of Boston, um, north okay. of Boston. So that's where I, I grew up. Um, you know, I lived between two towns, you know, through my whole childhood up in, in those areas. So, um, yeah, so I guess as some would say, I, I am a, a true born and bred mass hole. <laughs> <laughs> and, and what what um, I got got you into hunting? Like, is it something that that's just been passed down from generation to generation within your family? Or is it something you took like an endeavor you took upon yourself? Yeah, I mean, my grandfather on my father's side was the first person in, you know, my immediate family to hunt. Um, he um, took up hunting when he was younger. Um, you know, it was not uncommon for kind of people in eastern Massachusetts with, you know, Italian ethnicity immigrating to kind of take up that uh, torch. You know, rabbit hunting was a big thing. He got into deer hunting um you know he lived in boston and, and went hunting with guys from boston that introduced him to it out in western mass and then he passed that tradition on to my my father who ultimately passed that tradition on uh to me um as far as bow hunting no nobody in my family bow hunted um until me uh, my brother was really into archery when we were younger uh, my older brother but um he never actually shot a deer with it or anything like that and then um I really just found a fascination with deer hunting when I was in my like late teens, early twenties. And, um, once I figured out that if I hunted with a bow, I could hunt just this super long season <laughs> rather than two weeks <laughs> of the year and just see deer and just these immensely different capacities, you know, like the pre rut and rut and, um, just all this behavior I had never seen. And, and, you know, archery really kind of calmed me down of like, uh, taking that time to take the shot and that allowed me to really just kind of observe animals more than I ever did. So it built just an innate confidence in, in kind of what I did as hunting. I mean, still to this day, it's like I've shot like, oh, maybe six or seven deer with a gun, <laughs> you know, <laughs> is where, you know, archery is, you know, push it up to a hundred. So, um, so that's kind of an unusual, um, you know, factor that, I don't know, just worked for me. I, I just found it to be easier, I guess. All right, cool, cool. So, um, I guess my next question is going to be, 
with all these projects, or you know what, I'm gonna jump into the book, um, Urban Deer Complex, the first, the first one. What inspired that book? Yeah, so you know, it's um, I started writing that book over a decade ago now, um, and really, you know, I, I would say the biggest inspiration that I had from it was I had a mentor, this guy named uh, Jose, who lived in you know what, what we call Massachusetts a law town, so Lawrence. Um, and he, um, I used to see him all the time. Like I'd be driving by like a hunting spot and he'd like, I swear every time I drove by him, he was dragging a deer out of the woods. And I was just like, <laughs> I was like, what the hell are you doing? You know, like, and it was funny. Cause I kind of like, every time I'd see him, I'd pull over and be like, you know, teach me the ways. <laughs> and, um, he kind of figured out that I could get access to some properties he couldn't. I mean, that's the way of the world in kind of suburban America. Like people aren't just going to give some, you know, Puerto Rican dude uh, permission to go hunt their property. So it worked to his advantage mm. to, to go with me. Um, and he started teaching me. And, and, you know, his big thing was to like always challenge, you know, everything. It was just kind of this idea of like, why did a deer do that? How can you succeed? Like he just really pushed my limits. And, and I think like through all my hunting in life, I think the, the greatest compliment that I just take to heart today is like, you know, is, is the day that he told me that, you know, I out hunted him as a mentor, um, and that, you know, he was so proud of me for all the people that he had mentored that I was the one person that took it further. And so all of that, I think, inspired me to really push into kind of these crazy ideas of just looking at hunting from outside the box. Again, he wasn't from a traditional hunting background. I think that gave me new perspective. I came from a family that was, you know, really just didn't understand deer hunting. Um, like I, I think that's, it's, it's almost like growing up in a deer hunting family. I think some, sometimes is a disadvantage. Um, cause it's like, Oh, you know, we've been hunting from the same stand for 20 years and it's like, yeah, but like, the woods have changed, the habitats change, the, the patterns change, you know, especially in suburban America where you're, you're putting up houses or, you know, farms are getting, you know, are getting turned into, you know, developments or new, new roads are being put in. There's just so many different effects that can really dramatically change things that, um, you know, things change by the season. It's, it's not something that lasts for 20, 30 years. So. Nice. Nice. Um, with the second book, what now you, you had the first book, Urban Deer Complex, um, inspired by your experiences. What made you feel like um, there was a need for a second book? Or was there stuff, were there things or topics in the first book that you feel like maybe you didn't hit on and needed to hit on? Or, or you know, just information that you felt like, or maybe something new you learned, like, oh, you know what? I didn't experience this before. Oh, this is something I should probably put into a second book. Yeah, you know, I would say it was a combination of things. Um, there were things that I wasn't willing to reveal, I guess, in the first book. I, <laughs> I guess there was still a bit of a competitive edge to the way I looked at deer hunting. So I held back on some things. And then I learned a lot. You know, it was like the book was kind of a situation and this is this is just I've heard it from so many different writers. It's like you need to learn when to walk away from a book. And part of the problem was, is that the ideas I had were evolving so fast that I just had to put it to rest the way it was and then revisit again because um, I learned mm -hmm. a lot from that first book to when I wrote the second book. 
um, which really I made a need for it. It helped me refine my ideas a lot better. Um, there was just so much more to it. And in that regard, it's like, you know, it's like you learn more from teaching than you do from anything else. So I think that that was kind of it. When I started talking about it out loud, when I started putting it on paper, when I started discussing it with people, once the book was out, um, different things came to life. Um, I had a lot of opportunity where people would reach out to me and they might be hunting a mature whitetail and they would send me like aerial maps of the area and ask like what they should do. And, you know, it just wasn't panning out. And, you know, I found myself kind of guessing these situations with, you know, really good consistency. Um, and all of that really let me gain confidence in certain theories that I maybe wasn't fully, um, you know, fully committed to, um, it helped me refine those ideas and, and, and mostly organize them. Um, and in combination, Jesse St. Andre, who co-authored the book with me, I mean, he's one of the best, mm -hmm. um, all around hunters. I know he lives in, you know, he's from Maine originally, but lives in suburban Connecticut. And I mean, that dude traps, he bird hunts, he turkey hunts, he deer hunts and e e moose hunts, bear hunts, baits bear, you know, like, and everything he does, he just does it so well. And I actually met him after the first book and he had reached out to me because of the book and the inquisitive nature of Jesse, it was almost similar to my relationship with Jose, where it was like, he made me even challenge things further. We started talking about these ideas, you know, with more depth and really thinking about how they apply to situations. And by the time I actually moved on to doing 2.0, I had written a fair amount of those char chapters that were added not too long after the original book, but mm -hmm. I had stopped deer hunting at that point. So it was also really? important. Yeah. It was also important that, you know, Jesse was still deer hunting and to this day and deer hunts a lot as where, you know, I spent all my time bird hunting and, you know, I turkey hunt, but uh, yeah, I love turkey hunting, but when it comes to the fall and winter, I mean, all I'm doing is bird hunting. So, mm, got it, got it. Well, you know what? You touched on something that I've experienced over the last year and change since I decided to take up bow hunting myself. And I find I experienced never someone in the middle, but like it's either one extreme or the other. I've either encountered people who are more than forthcoming with information. You know what I'm saying? Like, w is willing to, like, tell me every trick in the book that they know and, you know, and, and help me along the way. And then if it's not that, then it's the total opposite where I get a person, well, you need to just get out in the woods. Like, and, and it's like as if they almost don't want to share their secrets. And then the, the same goes with um, with hunting locations. I think hunting locations is the is the biggest thing, regardless, regardless of what you're hunting, whether it's deer, turkey, um, bird hunting, whatever. It seems like, uh, again, there are people that are willing to take you to their spots and stuff like that because they, um, they feel like, especially if it's public land, that it's everyone's land. And then there are people that are just like, uh, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't hunt <laughs> type of deal. Totally. You know what I'm saying? What's, what's your take on that? Uh, you know, the, the older I get, the more willing I am to share. Um, you know, I, I spend a lot of time grouse and woodcock hunting, and particularly with rough grouse. Um, you know, habitat is very limited in New England. So as a result, uh, you know, protecting those locations is even more important than protecting a deer hunting spot. Because, you know, Whitetail actually got crucified for saying this on a radio show one time. 
um, <laughs> they're like you know they're, they're like the cockroaches of big game mammal they're going to survive in any situation in fact they've flourished in urban and suburban environments which is a beautifully incredible thing. And and I just mm-hmm. say that for the resilience of what a cockroach truly is. So, <laughs> no, no, I get, um, I get the compliment because, you know, yeah, I'm from yeah. New York City. So yeah. I, I've seen my fish there, cockroach, yeah, yes, yeah. but, but I, I get the, I get the, the comparison there. They, right. they are, you know, uh, a highly resilient, um, you know, animal um, from, you know, even this thing that I've seen via social media and stuff like that of, you know, the injuries they're able to endure and still, you know, still just live, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, they're just, they really are an incredible animal, and they're so smart, like, and, mm-hmm. you know, that intelligence, you know, and that's, that was a huge basis of the book, you know, is, is understanding the personalities of whitetail, um, and how that applies to deer hunting, I think, is a way that people don't approach deer hunting, and it's also, wrapping your mind around that concept and then all the influences that can happen whether it's the environment influencing that personality if it's uh generational trauma influencing that personality um there's so many different things that can kind of go into that factor in suburban and urban environments exasperate that behavior in whitetails um you hear about those stories but in in rural big woods environments where you know when chainsaws are running deer will come you know deer will come into clear cuts because they understand that there's treetops down and they can feed off those in the winter time and you know traditionally cutting seasons in the late winter so um there's these different kind of learned behaviors that you could see in rural environment but not not at the exasperated point that they become in suburban and urban america um and i see mm-hmm. it you know i live in i live in a pretty rural area now in new hampshire i moved up here about four years ago and um I see it up here, you know, and there's a lot of people that I've met up here that uh, had read my book that I've helped out with with deer hunting since I've moved up here. And the same rules apply to rural America. And in fact, I found in rural America, the advantage is just even bigger when you understand how adaptable they are and how willing they are to kind of push that limit of human interaction. I think we always think that they're scared um, you know, I, I remember being younger and thinking that if like dogs came through an area or a deer wouldn't come back and, you know, I, on my property at my house now, you know, I run my dog back there every single day and we see those deer consistently multiple times a week and they walk through the very path that we're beaten up, um, right after we've been through there. And they, so they, they're phenomenally intelligent at understanding the difference between what I would call threatening and non-threatening human behavior. Um, and you know, the biggest point of the urban deer complex is blending into non-threatening behavior. So non-threatening behavior could be a a mountain biker on a heavily used trail or a, or a hiker. It's, you know, I remember the first time I talked about the theory about talking to yourself on out loud when walking to your trail stand, because no other deer hunters do that. And deer understand the difference between this person trying to sneak through the woods, which is super obvious to them. And then the person Mm -hmm. that is talking they don't get shot by the person who's talking <laughs> they didn't see their yeah. you know they didn't see the deer next to them get shot by somebody who is talking out loud um so that uh idea of, of using what i call urban camouflage um, blending mm-hmm. into this concept of um you know these non-threatening behaviors it's it's everywhere you can see it in rural america you can see it in urban environments and it just again it, it's it's really i guess you could in a way say that it's it's almost an extreme view of darwinism um, mm-hmm. you know, and, and how it kind of pans out. So, 
No, I, it's it's funny you say that because um the preserve that I hunted this past fall um has miles upon miles of hiking trails um throughout it. So what happens is um the residents of the neighboring town, when the weather's nice enough, they're there by like seven, eight o'clock in the morning. And um bird watchers are also there. They frequent the um the preserve as well. So I like that tip because um like walking to a stand or anything like that, like you said, they, these people aren't quiet when they're walking the trails. So it, it's safe to say that the deer have adapted to the fact that they understand like, oh, when the people are talking and walking, they're going to walk right past me and not do anything. So they're in they're in They don't feel like they're in any kind of danger whatsoever. So I could I could definitely see that. And it's funny you talked about um, a deer's adaptability because I'm actually looking right now at page 62 of your second book and it just big bold print is as a result of a deer's adaptability, we need to evolve and adapt with them, which it's, it's something that, um, you know, I've, I'm learning as I, as I, uh, you know, coming into bow hunting and such, but I'm curious to know what your thoughts are. Well, you know what, before I even jump into that, actually, I'm sorry, let me backtrack a little because, um, I've found within the hunting community, the word urban is used differently than what I know it to be you mm -hmm. know, coming from where I come from. So for the sake of, I guess, your book and for hunting and stuff like that, what does urban mean to you in terms of, in terms of like, I guess, environment or, or, you know what, let me just stop talking right there. What does urban mean, you know, in regards to your book? Yeah, I mean, you know, there's areas immediately next to Boston that, you know, have been open to hunting. So you're talking a bit like hit, like, look at it almost as the concept as if they opened up a deer hunt in Central Park, you know, <laughs> obviously, that would never happen. I don't even know if there's whitetails in Central Park. But um, point being that, um, so those kind of immediate um, right next to bigger, you know, and, and kind of industrialized or, or even, you know, technically advanced cities like Boston, that's where I would consider kind of urban. Obviously, there has to be enough woods there to uh, legally be able to hunt. And also, be, depending on what part of the country you're in, especially in New England, there's a lot of unusual bylaws that can exist um, that can really hinder kind of that ability. And then suburban, you know, is now when you're getting out into that, you know, where I grew up, which is 30 minutes outside of Boston. And, you know, now it's like still very heavy density. Uh, you know, you could be hunting on properties that are, you know, 20, 30 acres large. Um, you know, but that's no different than if you were actually hunting a, you know, in fact, sometimes the areas that open up that are immediate next to a city are much larger than that, um, because they have been designated as some kind of preserve or reserve or something like that. But, um, that's kind of what I would define, um, those situations as I know when you shift throughout the country, you know, New England, New Jersey, New York, you know, Connecticut places that, you know, you and I are kind of thinking are were handled a lot differently than when you go out to the Midwest, um, where they have now put together these very sanctioned hunts um, that are very controlled, that involve these draw permits um, and stuff like that. And, you know, there was there's some trends certainly in our area in the Northeast that do those things. But since this part of the country has always kind of been developed in the modern age, um, ironically, the looseness of the requirements to be able to hunt these areas has been a lot more free. 
Um, you know, it's like New England and most states, you know, you can hunt a property if it's not posted. It's, it's at that point, it's public access, you know, even though it's private mm. property. So it's, yeah, it's um, the same here in New York. Yeah, exactly. And that's, you know, my understanding is if we go outside of the Northeast, it's no longer like that. So, um, so we've, as a culture learned to kind of live close to this, uh, you know, wild part of our <laughs> uh, existence in our developed part of society uh, pretty close in hand. So it's it's definitely made the Northeast be kind of the mecca of, you know, this urban suburban deer phenomenon, you know. So and now again, it's it's spread all over the place. I mean, you can, you can hunt mule deer in, in, in suburban settings now, you know, so. Yep. Got it. Well, jumping back now to, to that quote from your book I was talking about, um, we talked about because, or you talked about in the book, because of uh, the, you know, white-tailed deer, for example, uh, ability to adapt so well, we've got to adapt to them as well. But I'm curious to know, because like, all right, I'm a husband, father, hold down a full-time job. Um, so I do my best not to make excuses. I make I make choices and I know my choices might somehow limit what I'm able to do out in the woods. Um, can a hunter like myself change the way he's hunting? Um, I guess maybe, yeah, adapt the way I'm hunting aside from based off, not only on what the deer is doing, but my lifestyle as well to become successful. Like, um, is there anything maybe like if, if I know if, if I've got, because uh, being out here, I've, I'm not mentoring anyone myself. I'm still being mentored, but I'm coming across other hunters within the five boroughs of New York City or people who want to hunt, but are limited on time. They're limited on the amount of time they have to scout, the amount of time they have to actually hunt. In your experience, if you're limited on such time, what can somebody like myself um, focus on? in order to be more successful or get a better chance at being successful? Yeah, I mean, you know, there's there's two kind of theories put out in the book. And one is, you know, paying attention to how deer adapt behavior. But kind of the bigger pressure of that is is how hunters hunt. So I, I, don't, I don't remember exactly if it was named the same as the chapter in the original book, which is Hunting the Hunter. Um, and it's kind of this that concept of paying attention to what other hunters are doing and pretty much doing the opposite. So, you know, I used to do this for opening day of gun season in Massachusetts. I would go into areas that I knew that were going to be just trampled by, you know, what we'd all call the Orange Army. Uh, and I would go into the thickest, nastiest, deepest swamp I could find. And I'd hang a tree stand up in there. I'd sit in there with my bow every opening day. And um, all the deer would get driven into there. And it was a sure bet to kill a deer. <laughs> um, you know, so there's these ideas of taking advantage of the predictable aspects of deer hunting um, because there are a lot of unpredictable factors. You know, deer could be on a three-day rotation schedule. They are creatures of habit, but it doesn't mean that every day they're going to walk under that tree. Um, but there are factors, and especially, again, putting it into suburban and urban settings, there's a lot of variables that can even disrupt those patterns, which can become very frustrating where it's like, I talk about the theory in the book that when sign goes cold in an area, if there's still a reason for those deer to be in there, that's actually mo more of a reason to hunt there because inevitably they want to get back there. Um, and the mm -hmm. lack of them, you know, having clear sign in there is almost an indication that they're sure to be there soon. So looking for kind of these 
patterns, you know, I've always talked about odds where it's like, you know, it's like playing blackjack, you know, all you need is that 0.1% advantage and, you know, you win everything. Um, and it's like, there's different things that you can do to adopt that. Um, whether it's looking at the way other people hunt, um, whether it's, you know, how you're understanding how those deer work to set up a setup, uh, picking the times to hunt, um, the prep work that goes into a stand, you know, thinking about integrating family life into a situation. You know, I, I talk a lot about uh, pressure, you know, deer don't understand the difference between somebody carrying a gun in their hand and somebody carrying a bow or somebody carrying nothing at all. They understand the person talking that didn't kill them versus the person who was quiet who tried to kill them. Um, but point being is like one of those things that you can do, it's like, well, if you got to take your kids with you, which means you can't hunt, you can intentionally apply pressure to other areas of the woods that will actually make wherever your tree stand is safer for those deer, that those deer feel, you know, more inclined to be because they're experiencing pressure, even though it's, you know, your kids and you walking through the woods or whatever else, like that's still a perceived threat to them. Um, especially, you know, when you're doing things like getting off a trail, um, obviously you do need to pay, pay attention to state laws because there are certainly laws that would indicate if you're a harassing game or anything like that. But, um, it's, it's, it's almost like an adapted theory of, of deer drives where you're committing to putting pressure in an area for days on end to eventually go and hunt a, a different location, hoping that you pressure those deer into that spot. Um, and that's something that I would spend a lot of time with because in suburban America and urban America, you're going to run into areas that you can't hunt. Um, cause it's just not allowed. Um, but you might be able to hunt a spot that's just up the road legally. Um, you can probably still access that part that you can't hunt because it's designated for hiking and biking and all those other things. Um, so there's no reason why you can't go in there and create that. You don't have to bring a gun. You don't have to bring a bow and create that pressure. So that space no longer becomes safe for them. Um, or at least it's perceived as no longer being safe to them. So understanding those factors of kind of these little things that you can take advantage of. Um, you know, if, if I had to limit my time when I think about like, I could only take off certain times of the year. Um, if I'm just trying to put meat in my freezer, I want to hunt earliest in the season I possibly can, because that's when deer are most predictable. Um, if so that would I, be about, uh, that would be because our season opens here October. So that yeah. would be early October then. All right. Yeah, exactly. Cause by the end of October, you know, and, and I definitely have seen some wonky stuff go down in recent years that, you know, I'm sure has a lot to do with climate influence and stuff like that. But um, by the end of October, deer are going to be rotting. And rutting is very much a hit or miss. And in, in fact, I, I, I referenced my disdain for the rut <laughs> in my book <laughs> because it makes deer unpredictable. Um, it's a great opportunity to shoot a mature whitetail in daylight but it's also a great opportunity to shoot a deer that you weren't spending time trying to kill. Um, so the, my big thing was always trying to put whatever deer I was specifically targeting on the ground before the rut happens. Um, and that made my willingness to gamble and be a little more aggressive on how I hunted that deer, pushing how close I was willing to set up a stand, um, really getting tied up next to it, especially, you know, when we are talking about suburban settings, um, that willingness because once the rut happens all bets are off you know those deer don't care if you're trying to kill them if they're running they're running <laughs> mm -hmm. you know so you know i would i would focus on that and then you know a post rut or kind of the end of the season 
um, can also be an exciting time because you're talking about isolated food sources. Um, you're talking about um, situations where deer aren't as willing to move greater distances. Um, the patterns start to settle down uh, because, again, we're talking about the specific environment. Core areas for whitetail can really change in those times, so you do have to be, you do have to be active in the sense of putting up trail cameras because you know you can come to the middle of December, end of December, and areas that were on fire in the beginning of October might just not have the deer activity it did then, and that might not be directly related to food sources. It very well could be, you know, I'm a I'm a whitetail deer. I get ran through Walmart parking lots, across highways, everything else, and then the rut ends. And now I start going to find my way home and I start looking at that and I'm like, man, I ran through that parking lot. I'm not doing that. You know, like, so Mm -hmm. it really redistributes, um, deer. So you kind of get this, these really three distinctive pieces on timing where it's the early season, um, bucks, especially in September, if you're hunting in a state that you can hunt in September, bachelor, bachelor groups are still together. Um, that bachelor group will start to break up. You'll start to see your initial scrapes does will hold patterns um bucks will still generally hold patterns even when they're splitting from bachelor groups um then you go to the rut and it's kind of all bets off the does are going to get run the bucks are going to get run everybody's it's just pure chaos and it can be exciting when it goes down if you Mm -hmm. happen to be in the right place but it also can be very unpredictable in suburban america and then when that winds down in the end you get that sense of calm consistency and patternability so it really becomes with personal preference. Again, if you're trying to put, you know, if it's just about shooting a doe and failing a tag or shooting a spike horn or something like that, um, mm-hmm. take your time off in the early season. Um, if you don't have enough time to really scout out a mature whitetail and you're really set on killing a mature whitetail and just can't dedicate the amount of time that a deer, like uh, focusing on a single deer can require hunting during the rut, it's, it's just, you know, it's like spinning the roulette wheel. Um, and it can be an absolutely exciting, you know, it's like, a, you know, it can make or break you really, but that's kind of how I'd look to it as, as far as what I'm going to do for time and trail cameras alone. I know there's a lot of laws popping out right now that are really trying to limit the use of trail cameras in States, which is unfortunate, but, um, that aspect of being able to use technology in certain ways, do your scouting online, uh, Google Mm -hmm. maps, Onyx, um, you, you know, Bing, I mean, there's all these different platforms that just have incredible aerial views that, you know, you can, if you look, especially in suburban America, I remember when I first started using Google Earth to scout, I could see physically worn trails on maps of deer runs. Mm. And, and I could find those without ever actually going into those spots. So again, talking about saving time um, and balancing kind of a healthy family life, which let's face it, becoming an obsessive big buck hunters, quick way to destroy kind of the home life. And don't, I don't recommend it. Um, it's, it's, it, there are ways to get over it that can really make your commitment efficiency. And again, if you're going to go through the steps, do your scouting online, do 90% of it online, narrow down the places that you're going to hunt, put cramp cameras in those places, try to hunt the early season. If you're going to take time off, um, and make it happen then. Um, and you know, don't discriminate, <laughs> you know, got it, like, got I, it. I, you know, I think a lot of people think when a deer gets shot out of an area, like that's it. Um, and I mean, I have, you know, it's funny. I, I think of tree stands that I had when I was younger, single tree stands that we'd shoot, you know, between me and my friends and, you know, my brother and stuff like that, we'd shoot 
15, 20 deer out of the same tree stand in a season, you know? Um, so it's just insane because again, yeah, there's very limited real estate and the reason they want to come through places and how they come through places are, are, are sometimes very much not dictated the way they would like it to be. So. I hear you. So first I got to say, thank you for, for having a refreshing, uh, view on the rut because i think you are the first uh, the only person that i'm aware of to have expressed you know kind of that their dislike for for the rut but that's where i believe like you referred to in your book um the second book the single the single buck hunter versus the general buck hunter right so i guess where if you're if you're trying to pattern a single buck that's where the rut can really mess you up totally. so i i can t- i can totally understand that um, now you brought up, um, you know, how with technology evolving as quickly as it is, you know, there, there are restrictions on, you know, trail cameras. I know there's a huge debate about, you know, cellular trail cameras, you know, where you don't even have to go out to the woods and pull a card. What are your tips for, like, I own trail cameras, but in all honesty, with the money that I've paid for them, um, I'm hunting public land. I have no desire to put them up in public land at the risk of them getting stolen. What advice can you offer for someone, um, for someone, uh, hello? Yeah, I'm here. I'm sorry. Um, what advice can you, can you offer someone who is hunting public land, um, without the use of a trail camera? Yeah. Well, I mean, two things. One, if you, if you do plan to use a trail camera on public lands, which I did, and I've, I've had more cameras than I care to admit out loud that have been stolen. (laughs) Um, what we eventually started doing is I would climb up into trees, um, and I would buy arms for them and put them, you know, 20, 30 feet up into a tree and aim them down. Um, a lot of hunters will miss that they're there. Um, you're still going to get some picked off, but for the most part, even if somebody does see him there, they're going to have to have a climbing stand or something to get it out. (laughs) So, um, that's one way to kind of avoid getting your cameras stolen on public lands. Um, Mm -hmm. The other thing is I would notoriously set up cameras to watch my cameras. So, you know, you go up and you get into a situation, you'd swipe a camera and I'd have another camera there. And I, you know, that's just the nature of the beast. So it's a small community too. So it's pretty easy to track down whoever it might've been. But, um, so there is that aspect, but you know, deer at the end of the day, um, you know, there's, there's some finite behaviors that you can rely on. Um, I mean, by scientific definition, I forget the name of the word, but they're edge creatures, meaning that, you know, they don't necessarily want to walk right out into the middle of the field. They want to walk the edge. You know, they don't necessarily want to walk right through the middle of the woods. They want to walk on the edge. Um, so concepts of understanding woodsmanship, which, you know, I'm a firm believer that woodsmanship will kill more animals than any other factor. It's like turkey hunting. If you understand how mm-hmm. a turkey's going to come in, um, that's going to kill you more birds than being a good caller. Um, if you understand how deer are going to look at the land and walk through that land, that's going to kill you more deer than putting up a trail camera. So that understanding of of how they use, you know, um, these natural, you know, lines in, in kind of the landscape uh, can be a hugely important um, factor to doing that. So proper tree stand placement is really the biggest thing. Um, it can make or break you. The willingness to move a stand, um, you know, if you're using a fixed stand, sometimes people, that's it, they're committed. But I mean, you know, I, I really, 
I really learned this with hunting mature bucks where it was like, I knew so many people who hunted mature bucks, but never shot them, but they'd see them. They do all sorts mm. of things. And in the, the ongoing factor is that they weren't willing to push hard enough, you know, to kind of gamble with the situation to actually get the opportunity to kill that deer. So they wouldn't push the stand close enough. They wouldn't, um, they wouldn't hunt the area aggressive enough. They would wait until the rut instead of hunting hard early in the season. So, and, and one of the things I kind of, I've always pointed out to these people when I've met them and, and some of them, you know, now I, you know, I get pictures of mature bucks all the time from is like, what do you got to lose, man? You didn't shoot it last year. You didn't shoot it the year before. You didn't shoot it the year before that. Like you've got nothing to lose. If anything, your season's got to pan out the same. Like you gotta, you gotta change something. So mm-hmm. this willingness to adapt um, and not just settle or commit um, and being able to identify the difference between I'm sitting in a stand, I've hunted it for three days and I haven't seen anything. You do need to be able to make that judgment of, is it, is it a, a bad setup or is it just a timing thing? You know, have they just mm-hmm. not back through the land? And that can you, be very you, difficult to distinguish. I don't, to cu- I don't mean to cut you off, but yeah. you actually just described me to a T because I hunted a specific spot like three, four days. And I'm not gonna lie, it was my pride that kept me going back to that same spot because <laughs> I was hey, so I was so set on be like, no, I saw the sign here. I know they're gonna be yep. here. Th- th- this is what I'm I'm counting on. I'm gonna keep hunting this spot, this spot, this spot. Yeah, and and also I think the willingness to hard reset, um, and also the willingness to seek advice, and this is partic- particularly important for mature buck hunting. When you're in it and you're hyper-focused on an animal that you've spent maybe years, you know, obsessing over, you're you're not thinking clearly. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And sometimes asking somebody else and having that willingness to share an aerial map of the area, let somebody look at it with fresh eyes um, Mm -hmm. and maybe give a little bit of a reset because you do have personal biases. You know, you were set that that was the spot. And as a result no matter where you choose to move that stand in the back of your mind, it's still, that was the spot, you know, and now that's going to influence how that second spot is picked. Um, so I, I think that there's important factors of kind of doing that. And again, just the, the willingness to fail is just so important to becoming a good deer hunter. I mean, anybody I know who's a good deer hunter has failed in all sorts of circumstances that could take more books to write (laughs) than the successes and that's the reality of it um as far as trying to figure those those kind of factors out and you know there there's a whole you know there's a lot of variables in place um especially in suburban america you know did that person just happen to come out and mow their lawn at dusk for the first time ever did that you know did the deer happen to have a dog that isn't normally in a backyard charge up to the edge and start barking at it? You know, there's, there's these factors that can work to your disadvantage and advantage, and it can make suburban and urban hunting more, uh, what's the word? Colopy? Would that be it? Um, (laughs) yeah, where it's just like, it's, it's this unpredictable factor. So you have to go with the predictability, which is, you know, I, I relay this out in the book that deer have an intention to live a normal life. Like, you know, I put it more elegantly and more well thought up on paper, but this concept that they are 100% committed to living a life of boredom and consistency and, uh, you know, just through a cycle over and over again. 
But suburban America is going to throw all sorts of variables at that. And they're vastly unpredictable. You can't predict them. Um, and that is going to really make certain situations frustrating. When you go to rural America, like, you know, when you first moved here, my wife did a fair amount of deer hunting and I would set the stands and stuff. And I was just amazed about how predictable it was. <laughs> yeah. um, because there's just less factors that are influencing on all those deer to change a pattern um, that, you know, can, and again, it can become really frustrating. And, and we've all been there where you like, you commit to a stand for four days and you've been there every day and you didn't see a single thing, or maybe you are waiting for a specific buck. And then, you know, you don't hunt the next day, but you hunt the day after and you come back in the trail camera and here's, you know, 150 inch deer just, you know, sitting under a tree stand, you know, licking his butt or something and you're just like how the <laughs> hell did that happen you know like that's gonna happen um that happens to the best of everybody um and it happens again more often than the actual connecting the you know letting the arrow go and and putting that deer on the ground um so it's 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 a lot of factors and, and the other thing is is kind of the willingness to hunt very unusual methodologies so one of the first methods that i really committed to which is really time saving is this concept mm -hmm. of, of hunting from walking trails. So I would go to these walking trails that were heavily walked by soccer moms and, you know, whoever else that were being loud and going through it. And deer have come to um, not fear them. And mm -hmm. there's, a, there's this whole section of the book that talks about the science of fear, and it's how f deer uh, react to fear and how they develop behavior based on fear. And one of the things that I figured out at a young age was that you could do this on these trails. You could adapt in these trails. You don't want a scent kill. In fact, if you put cologne or perfume on or anything like that, you're actually better off because deer know that you're there. You've given them fair warning. If you're, I would, I would talk to myself out loud or I'd take a phone call. Um, these were all aspects that could really um, make those deals feel safe that you're no different than every other person. Again, urban camouflage. But you would, you would see these deer. And a lot of people don't have the trained eye that a hunter does to know that, oh, there's this deer standing 30 yards off the trail or, or five, six does watching you walk by. Sure, some of them might notice it or whatever else, but for the most part, they're actually not getting you know noticed. They're phenomenal at blending in. And if you're not a hunter, you're not really paying attention to those you know minor details of, of how a deer will stick out on a landscape. So I figured out and actually the first article I ever wrote, and I must have, oh my God, it had to be, geez, you know, we're talking almost 20 years ago now that I wrote that article. And it was this idea of um, the theory of fluid motion. So it was like, if you saw a deer standing in a, off the side of a trail, you would, you, the idea is that you never stop walking. Because as soon as you stop walking, that you've now indicated to that deer that you're there. So I would draw back my bow and I would try to shoot that deer while I was walking. Um, I'd walk backwards and if I couldn't get the shot, I wouldn't take it. And what I would do is I'd walk hundred, 150 yards up the trail and I'd walk back again and I'd still continue to make loud noises and everything else. As far as that deer is concerned, you're just the casual hiker doing their daily thing and they're eating whatever they're eating, doing their normal day because they know that they're safe where they are. And eventually you're going to be able to let that arrow fly. Um, and that comes into a lot of concepts of, you know, it's important to put a lot of time into understanding your capabilities with a bow. Um, you know, I think that that's a huge factor. It's like, I know I shoot my bow better than I shoot my shotgun or I shoot my rifle. Um, and I put a lot of time into that, you know, whether it's from elevated positions, whether it's from awkward standing positions, whether it's walking backwards, being able to shoot. So, um, understanding when you have that clear, 
you know, that clear shot through brush because you are often shooting into tight situations. Um, all these different factors, being able to have your own confidence in these situations can be hugely important. Um, but that, that methodology of hunting is, you know, one of kind of the best things that I've done for, for styles. Um, and then there's the other things like intentionally bumping deer. You know, there's plenty of people, you know, I think a, like Jim Gallagher um, from Jim's Tricks, um, you know, he would, not that they would intentionally bump deer. I was a little more aggressive to do it intentionally, but, but you'd mm-hmm. bump a deer and then that deer would run away and you would snort wheeze and set up your tree stand and wait for that deer to come back in. Um, and that concept is, is a very aggressive methodology of hunting or deer drives. Deer drives in suburban America are phenomenally effective. Uh, can also be huge time savers. If you've got five, six people, you know that deer are bedded in an area and you understand their escape routes. You set up people in their escape routes and, and somebody goes in and pushes them out. Um, you know, so there are ways to kind of be more aggressive that can really save time in suburban hunting. Um, but, you know, it's it's all takes, uh, you know, people out of their comfort to kind of figure those things out. Mm. All right. That's a lot of, I'm not going to lie, it's a lot of information. I'm probably going to be going back uh, to this recording and um, uh, what do you call it? And taking advantage of the info and probably jotting down some notes myself, to be honest. Um, Now, I got, I guess, uh, probably two more uh, final questions, if you will. Um, you are the founder and creator of what's called a uh, creative director. I'm sorry, of the Northwoods Collective. What exactly is that? Yeah, so Northwoods Collective is a creative agency. So we're an agency. So companies hire us to produce, you know, films, commercials, um, catalogs, um, websites, all that kind of stuff. Um, the vast majority of the Northwoods Collective is Project Upland, which is a media company. Um, which serves in the upland space. Um, so that is kind of the biggest amount of work I do is in upland hunting. Um, so, and I'm co-founder of Northwoods Collective. My business partner is Chad Hurley, a gentleman out of Idaho. Um, he's also originally from urban America. He's from uh, he's from uh, Santa Cruz, or, I believe Santa, or Santa Barbara. I'm getting confused. Um, but surfer. Um, <laughs> So he's from that area. So um, he's co-founder of Northwood Collective. I found Project Upland um, before Chet and I got in business. I had written the Urban Complex before I got into business with him. But all of that came under the Northwoods Collective umbrella. All right. Nice. And then speak about, if you don't mind, um, I guess, because um, it says you're a red bedroom filmmaker, like you referred to in regards to the Project Upland series. What exactly does that series entail? Yeah, well, you know, we're a multimedia platform, so we own two print magazines, um, Hunting Dog Confidential and Project Upland Magazine. Uh, We own 10 podcast series. Um, We have our website, you know, which does about a quarter million hits a month. Um, And we have a film series, a short film series that goes along with it, as well as we actually make documentary full-length films. We did our first one last year with BHA called uh, Public Grouse. We have another one coming out with them uh, real soon called 2,000 Miles. Um, I personally don't make many films these days. Um, I made about 
Oh, probably about half now of all the Project Upland films that were ever made. But um, Northwoods Collective now employs a, a, a series of filmmakers that go out. Um, we're a little unusual the way we do business. It's not classic what people think of film crews. Um, if you shoot films in our business, you you shoot the film as an individual, you take the photos of an individual, you edit that film, um, you're really doing it all start to finish. Those filmmakers are working directly with me. I'm working with them on what the story is that they're trying to capture. I'll work with them on the editing board to to make kind of final tweaks. But, you know, we're hiring artists. So that's that's really what we're looking for is just good, good artistic storytellers. But so, um, you know, we have a whole team of copy editors, editors, because, you know, we are a print publication and we do, you know, we release three new articles every week online. Um, so we're really busy in, in that kind of regard. But we even do audiobooks. Uh, we're about to release our third audiobook on Audible. Um, you know, so we do all sorts of stuff in, in that regard. But as far as filming now, um, I, I don't, because of what Northwoods Collective does, um, I don't do that as hands-on as much. Actually, just happening. All right. Now, where can, like, all this content, is it across, like, um, like, you have podcasts, you have the short films, can they all be found in one location, or do we have to go to different platforms to find them? If anyone who's interested in, you know, watching these films or listening to the podcast. Yeah, so uh, projectupland.com, um, you can find everything we do in that world. Um, you can find the films, the podcast series, um, articles audio you know the ads for the audiobooks they're all kind of right there for the most part um any kind of events that are coming up like a film tour uh when we do stuff with like bha that will be on there um as far as the urban deer complex there is urbandeercomplex.com um that site has been neglected beyond belief um i think the last time i wrote an article on there was about a year or two ago and it was about transgenerational stress inheritance which was um science proving my theories about deer behavior for the first time and i was like super stoked on it i still geek out about deer behavior every day so every time i go in the woods with my dog i i i'm just fascinated about how deer interact with us so um so there is a lot of kind of outdated content on there content that really needs to be refreshed but um and we're there's been a little bit of discussions internally about uh resurrecting urban deer complex um and really starting to bring in new writers and really starting to expand on the topic. So, um, hopefully people will see uh, urbandeercomplex.com. So. All right, got it. All right, man, listen, um, first I want to apologize because I know, I don't know if you could tell the difference in the audio, but um, I was recording this uh, in my car because uh, my apartment, uh, being as small as it is, you know, my uh, kids are, like I said, remote learning. And then now I had to get out the car. So I apologize if you or my listeners hear traffic in the background. But <laughs> That's okay. Fine. <laughs> Finally, I've got to say thank you, man. Um, I truly learned a lot from you. Truly learned a lot from this conversation. Like I said before, I'm, I'm going to go back, listen to this again, and jot down some notes and try to apply some of the, the tactics that you, you know, were... So, so just be, you were just really cool about sharing. So I truly appreciate that. Yeah. And, you know, send me an email anytime, man. I'm always willing to talk about it and dissect some of the theories in those chapters out in more detail. So you can only get so much down in a book. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you, man. You have a great day. You too, Cliff.